Jogcast, out of wit for the summer, with Megan Argo, John Field, Men Lee Jean, Jen Gupta, Ian Morrison, and Mark Berber. The Jogcast, August 2011 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jogcast. I'm Jen, and joining me today are Megan and Melanie. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. And before we get started, in case anyone listening does not listen to the feedback and part of the show at the end, I wanted to point out that we have a new Jogcast Facebook page. So Facebook is archiving groups and we're not popular enough to be upgraded to a new group. So I thought I'd make a page, which means that we finally have the URL facebook.com slash Jogcast, which is good. So head on over there and like us. Also, before we start... This is Megan's last show in Manchester as she's going and leaving us again for a new job. I've been back for four months and I'm off again. Where are you going? This time I'm going to the Netherlands to work at a place called Astron. Ooh. Exciting. Yes. So, yes, I leave at the weekend. So I shall still be doing the news as usual, but yes, I won't be in the studio again for a while. (laughs) You'll come visit? I'll Try and come visit, yeah. Maybe yeah. the Jogcast could go visit the Netherlands. That'd be Ooh. good. Ooh. We should road have a trip. Yeah. <laughs> I'm all for that. <laughs> You've done the Tour de Merlin. You should do the Tour de Lofar. Ooh. That would be hard. <laughs> it just will take more than a day. <laughs> yeah. In the show this time, we talk to Professor Philip Podziedlowski about the different types of supernovae, and we find out what you can see in the August night sky. But first, before all of that, here's the news. With me. <laughs> In the news this month, Swift spots a new type of gamma-ray burst, Nuclear Network spots a meteoric fireball, and launch of a new space telescope. Over the six and a half years since its launch, the Swift satellite has been spotting energetic outbursts all over the sky, but in two papers published in the journal Science on the 8th of July, astronomers report the detection of a completely new type of transient event, whose properties are completely unlike those of any previously observed source. With several detectors on board, SWIFT is designed to spot new objects in the gamma-ray sky and collect information in three different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. When the satellite detects a new event, it realigns itself so that the object is visible to both the X-ray telescope and the ultraviolet and optical telescope, known as XRT and UVOT respectively, and transmits a message to the ground so astronomers can point other telescopes at the same event to gather more information. On average, SWIFT detects about two of these gamma-ray bursts every week, and most are fairly short-lived, lasting only a few seconds. But one, detected on March 28, 2011, turned out to be quite exceptional. Known as GRB 110328A, or SWIFT 1644-57, this source stayed bright in the X-ray for a considerable amount of time, re-triggering SWIFT's burst alert telescope three times over the next 48 hours. Even so-called long-duration gamma-ray bursts fade significantly on timescales of a few minutes, and since long-duration gamma-ray bursts are the result of catastrophic stellar explosions, they do not re-brighten and cause multiple triggers. The burst was observed at the centre of a small star-forming galaxy, located 3.8 billion light-years away in the constellation of Draco, but its peak luminosity was roughly 100 times higher than for known bright active galactic nuclei, suggesting that the cause of this burst could be a rare process involving the galaxy's central black hole. The burst was followed up by ground-based optical, infrared, millimetre and radio telescopes, as well as with the Hubble Space Telescope and the orbiting Chandra X-ray Observatory. According to the authors of the two studies published in Science, the likely cause of this extremely unusual event is that the massive black hole in the centre of the galaxy has pulled apart a star which got too close, 
ripping the star apart and swallowing it in pieces, sending out two powerful jets of radiation, one of which was pointing right at the Earth. The authors conclude that since this is the first event of its kind that has been observed in the six and a half years of Swift's operation, they must be quite rare occurrences. Small bits of rock and dust enter the Earth's atmosphere every single day, but most are tiny and go completely unnoticed by people on the ground. Larger ones are often seen as meteors by observers under dark skies. At the other end of the scale are the large asteroids and comets, which could cause widespread damage if they got close enough to hit the planet. In between these extremes are rocks which are large enough to make it most of the way through the atmosphere, but small enough that they explode before reaching the ground. Large enough atmospheric explosions can cause physical damage at ground level, as happened in Tunguska in 1908, when a large impactor exploded less than 10 kilometres above Siberia, flattening 80 million trees over an area of 2,150 square kilometres, with an estimated energy of tens of megatons of TNT. Luckily, events on this scale are rare, but there is evidence that explosions in the kiloton range, objects around 10 metres in diameter, happen in the upper atmosphere more than once a year. But with little in the way of reliable records, estimates of the damage caused by objects of different sizes are not well constrained. Writing in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, a team led by Elizabeth Silber from the University of Western Ontario in Canada report the detection of an atmospheric impact over Indonesia using infrasound detectors. The explosion occurred on October the 8th, 2009, at 10.57am local time, and was witnessed by people in South Sulawesi, who reported thunder-like sounds and the ground shaking. The team used data from a network of infrasound detectors which pick up very low-frequency sound waves to look for signatures of the event. The detectors are part of the International Monitoring System, a global network operated by the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organization, set up to detect nuclear explosions. The energies of atmospheric events caused by bolide explosions, such as the Tunguska or Indonesian events, are comparable with those in nuclear explosions, so the network is an ideal instrument for studying the size, energies and frequencies of extraterrestrial impactors. Infrasound describes sound waves of frequencies of 20 Hz or less, waves which can travel very large distances in the atmosphere, making them ideal for studying atmospheric explosions. Using the network, the team found positive detections of the Indonesian event in data from 17 separate stations, one as far away as 17,500 kilometres, which was recorded almost 15 hours after the explosion. Using the data collected from these stations, together with modelling the likely track through the atmosphere, the team estimate the energy of the explosion to be equivalent to roughly 50 kilotons of TNT, corresponding to an object between 6 and 10 metres in diameter. This makes it much smaller than the Tunguska event, which had an estimated energy of 10 to 15 megatons of TNT. Based on records collected to date, objects the size of the Indonesian event are thought to impact the atmosphere on average once every five years. The authors point out that, aside from eyewitness reports and a few handheld videos of the dust trail, no other records of the event exist, so information from this network of sensors provides valuable data on the frequency and energies of atmospheric impacts. And finally, July 18th saw the launch of a new space telescope. The Radio Astron satellite was launched from the Baikonur Cosmodrome at 2.31 GMT aboard a Zenit rocket. With a diameter of 10 metres, it is the largest space telescope currently in orbit, but rather than collecting optical light as Hubble does, Radio Astron, as its name suggests, is a radio telescope. While 10 metres is on the small side for a radio telescope on the Earth, its main use is as part of an array of existing ground-based telescopes using a technique known as interferometry. Since radio waves have much longer wavelengths than ordinary light, radio telescopes have very poor resolution compared to optical telescopes. 
To overcome this, radio telescopes work together in arrays to synthesize a much larger instrument with far greater resolution. With an operational lifetime of five years, the addition of the radio astron satellite to existing ground-based arrays will enable observations at a resolution of a few milliarc seconds, around a millionth of a degree. Thanks for that, Megan. And now we have yet another Marktastic interview. This time he spoke to Professor Philip Podsielowski about supernovae, and apparently it's not all as clear-cut as we thought. Today I'm interviewing Professor Philip Podsielowski from Oxford University, who's been giving us a colloquium here at Jodrell Bank on uh, the diversity of different types of supernova explosions. So my sort of naive idea of a supernova is that you have a very massive star, it's fusing various types of material sequentially, you end up with iron, you can't get any more energy out of the fusion, and then without a heat source the whole star collapses and there's a great explosion and that's a supernova. But you've been telling us that it's not quite as simple as that. That is one of the main supernova types. As you said correctly, a massive star that has burnt everything to iron can no longer produce any energy and has to collapse. And the collapse then produces either a neutron star or a black hole. However, that itself doesn't produce a supernova yet, because the supernova is actually the explosion of the envelope. Nova stands for new star and supernova, a bright new star that all of a sudden appears, but it's really the envelope. So the envelope of the star is the surrounding uh, atmosphere? Well, it's actually the bulk of the star, typically. The iron core is maybe one and a half solar masses, but the total mass of the star may be 10, 20 solar masses. So it's really most of the star that is ejected in the supernova. The big question, however, is how do you get something that implodes, forming this neutron star or black hole, actually cause an explosion of the envelope? There's a lot of energy that's released in this implosion, but most of that energy comes out in the form of neutrinos. These neutrinos couple weakly to matter, and therefore it's not clear how a fraction of that energy can be deposited in the envelope. And to date, there are no realistic calculations that show that you get an explosion. So we have a lot of these sort of ghostly particles, which are the neutrinos. Yes. And normally they just pass right through ordinary matter, but... Now, we know that some supernovae do exactly this because there is supernova 1987A that occurred 24 years ago. And the neutrinos from that supernova, a few of the neutrinos, were actually observed. A total of 17. 17 (laughs) neutrinos. Well, that was um, quite a lot compared to the usual background, I suppose. Yes. Oh, yes. That's way above the background. And even though it was only 17 neutrinos, it was enough to actually determine the total energy that must have been the neutrinos, and that's comparable to the energy that's released when you form a neutron star. So we know, in fact, in that particular case, that that a neutron star formed initially, even though it has not yet been detected. Okay, so left over from that explosion, there's a a very dense core. Could it, at some point, appear as a pulsar? Well, definitely. (laughs) People have been looking for a pulsar in that supernova remnant ever since. There have been several claims of pulsar having been detected, but they were all turned out to be incorrect. So was that supernova in 1987 a sort of classical supernova as we might expect to see it? No, it wasn't. In fact, it was a very different star that exploded than than what was was expected. I mean, you expect stars to become big red supergiants like Betelgeuse and to explode in that phase. Now, this one was actually a blue supergiant, and that didn't look very evolved. I mean, 
this has been a big puzzle. I think the explanation for that is that it used to be two stars that, that merged. Right. And that changed the structure sufficiently that a star that is red initially then becomes blue. So it was kind of masquerading as a younger star. It was then masquerading as a much younger object. And we know that something traumatic happened because there is a complex nebula consisting of three rings surrounding it and that these ejecta must have something to do with, with what happened 20,000 years ago with this merging event. So those multiple rings were, could be to do with the, the fact there was more than one body yes, initially. Yes, yes. I mean, you would never expect a single star to eject matter in, in such a funny way. Mm. So. And is it something that um, we can model well, yes. I, in fact, I had a PhD student who modeled this and was published on the 20th anniversary of the supernova, <laughs> the 23rd of February in 2007. But that's, that's just the one type of supernova. Classically, there are two main types. There are these core collapse supernovae that occur in massive stars. But there's a second type of supernova, so-called thermonuclear explosion, which occurs in, in a white dwarf, in a carbon-oxygen white dwarf. When it, its mass gets close to the critical mass, the Chandrasekhar mass, it ignites carbon under degenerate conditions, and that leads to a thermonuclear runaway. As a result of the thermonuclear runaway, the whole star is completely disrupted. So perhaps you should explain a little bit about what, what the white dwarf is. That's um, left over from something that's uh, less massive than the sort of star that creates a supernova. That's less massive than a star that produces a core collapse supernova. Ah, okay, yes. The, I mean, the, the initial mass would be less than seven solar masses. Probably not much less. Because one of the big puzzles there is why does the white dwarf mass grow? And that's the big, big puzzle for these this particular supernova type. One idea is that you accrete matter from a companion star till it gets to the critical mass. Or the other idea is that you have actually two white dwarfs that merge and produce a single more massive object. Both of these models have the pros and cons, and there's a big debate going on at the moment. So they just reach a, a mass where the white dwarf can no longer exist in, in that state, and then it becomes even more dense. Right. It ignites carbon when it's quite close to the Chandrasekhar mass. So it's something like 1.4? It's 1. Masses. Yes, 1.38 or something. Yeah. Now these are interesting from a cosmological point of view because these have been used as standard candles and these provided the first evidence that the universe is not just expanding but that it may actually be accelerating. So what do we mean by a, a standard candle? Well, a standard candle means that you have an object whose intrinsic luminosity you know. If you measure the flux and then use one of our squared law, then you can deduce the distance. Now, these are actually not very good standard candles, but there seems to be a way of making them standard candles because the brighter ones decay more slowly than the fainter ones. And so you can correct for differences in luminosity that way. But that's done mainly empirically, I should say. Okay. So you're actually looking at the brightness of the uh, phenomenon over a period of time and using that to say how bright it is. That's right. I mean, the different types of supernovae are bright for different amounts of times. These core collapse supernovae, classical, tend to be bright for hundreds of days. Thermonuclear explosions tend to be bright for a much shorter amount of time. So it's typically the first 30 days which you need to, to measure the light curve. And if we uh, 
looking at cosmic expansion from this, presumably some of these events that we're seeing are redshifted significantly and therefore very, very far away. Yes. So there's obviously a huge amount of energy coming out of these yes. kind of explosions. Right. Certainly you can see these thermonuclear explosions to redshifts of about 1.5. In fact, I think the record now is about 2 point and a little bit. But there's another supernova type which you can observe at even larger distances, and these are related to gamma-ray bursts. In fact, the gamma-ray bursts can be seen at very high redshifts. The record holder at the moment is a redshift of 9.4. So that's looking back a very significant fraction of the age of the universe. Yes, the universe was about half a billion years old at that time. So at the moment, I think that's the most distant, well-established object in the universe. The reason is they are not only bright, but the energy, the gamma rays, are relativistically beamed. So that amplifies the flux you receive if you are in the beam. So they're not but, just exploding in all directions? No, no. If they were doing that, then you would not be able to see them at such high redshifts. Okay. I have a bit of a question related to that, actually. One of the things that you talked about was um, how the metallicity of... Um, a star affects the supernova explosion that happens. Yes. So in this very early supernova in the early universe, presumably that came from a star which had very low metallicity. Can you um, see anything in the signature of that that gives away that it's happening in, in the young universe? We don't quite know what the progenitors of gamma-ray bursts are. In one of the models, it has to do with the metallicity. And the the problem is we'll think that in order to get a gamma burst, you need a rapidly rotating star and actually a rapidly rotating core of a star that collapses. Now, at solar metallicity, massive stars lose all of their rotation because of stellar winds. And so we don't think that single stars would be rapidly rotating when they explode. But if you go to low metallicity, then the winds become much weaker and you may end up with a rapidly rotating core. This particular model then predicts that there should be many more gamma bursts at higher redshifts. And you should see that, if you look at the redshift distribution of gamma bursts, you, you should see that the number of gamma bursts relative to the supernovae should go up. Since we can observe gamma rays basically at all redshifts, that can already be tested. And that doesn't seem to be the case. Really, so there doesn't seem to be a difference in what supernovae were like in the past, particularly. It's not obvious that the gamma burst rate goes up as you would expect in that way. Right. Do we have any idea why that is, or is that just still a well, mystery? Well, this is just one particular model. There are other ways of getting rapidly rotating stars, and that's if you have if, if binary systems, because then you have a lot of angular momentum, and there are various ideas that you might produce a gamma burst if you have two cores of a star merge, because then you always end up with a rapidly rotating core. And that's not so metallicity dependent. In fact, now I've mentioned binaries twice, then binary evolution, I think, is, is one of the main factors for the diversity of supernovae, observed supernovae. So a lot of stars are, are actually have companions and exist. Well, in particular, systems. if you look at massive stars, the most massive stars actually all seem to be close binaries. Not only that, they tend to have masses that are quite comparable. So if one star's mass of the companion star tends to have a similar mass. And what's then the effect on a supernova when it happens if there's a companion present? Well, if the companion is still present, then certainly part of the envelope of that companion will be stripped off. 
which you may see in the ejector. It also can affect the supernova remnant itself. The shape? and The, the shape, yes. As in the case of 1987A, I guess. Well, at the time of the explosion, there was no companion star left, right? So the, the idea there was that the two stars merged completely and produced a single star. Ah, and that star then survived for some amount of time that before... That survived for the next 20,000 years and then... Okay. So there's quite a zoo of different phenomena. Yes, and... One of the big questions also that's not solved is when do you form a neutron star and when do you form a black hole? And when you form a black hole, you don't necessarily expect a bright supernova because if everything collapses and nothing has to come out. Right. So black hole forming supernovae may be, may be rather faint. And the way to, how you would detect them is, is you had a massive star disappear. Right. Sort of swallowed up yes. by its own core, really. Yes. I mean, that's possible in principle, but you need to observe, look at lots of stars and have a record, and then you can go back, let's say, 10 years later and see whether they are still all there. <laughs> <laughs> so what I wanted to ask about um, the observational side of supernovae is, um, can we clearly distinguish these different types of supernovae that we're expecting, or is the um, empirical side of of studying supernovae a little bit different in terms of classification. Yes, it's it's actually very difficult to relate the theoretical phenomena that happen in the course of these stars to the observations. And the case of supernova 1987A, it was possible because the neutrinos were actually observed. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the only supernova where that has been possible close. because it was very close. It was in the large Magellanic cloud, so it's nearby. On the other hand, what you see, what you observe is just is a spectrum and a light curve and that doesn't tell you anything about what happens in the core. So you need a lot of theoretical modeling to determine, for example, the, the mass in the ejector. I mean, that that's certainly helpful. But if you have a star that has lost all of its hydrogen because of binary interactions, for example, then it produces a type 1 supernova that looks very similar to a thermonuclear explosion. And it does happen occasionally that they are being confused. So we can't be quite sure when we see a supernova exact, necessarily exactly the mechanism that's, no. that's caused it. No. It's probably not so difficult for the thermonuclear explosions because they produce a lot of silicon and sulfur in the explosion, which you can see, and that's, that's a good indicator. But there are, now that thousands of supernovae are discovered every year, there are more and more new types where it's not clear whether you have a core collapse supernova or some thermonuclear explosion. Okay. So I should probably explain that the light curve is what you were talking about before, the uh, brightness uh, as a function of time. That's right. And the spectrum is telling us what chemicals are, or what elements are present. What in the elements explosion. are in the ejector and the elements you see at a particular time. So with now, as you're saying, seeing thousands of um, supernovae per year, how how are we observing them nowadays, and how does that compare with, um, say, uh, uh, observations 20 years ago? Well, until a few years ago, most supernovae were discovered by amateurs, and that's just because they were covering a bigger part of the sky every night. Now there are systematic surveys, transient surveys, and they are now finding more supernovae than the amateurs. There are several transient surveys happening right now or starting in the near future, and in this will just add more to the complexity. Yes. <laughs> because because we have we have no good criteria to identify the particular mechanisms. 
and so it's actually quite a mess at the moment. <laughs> you have a good collection of data to yes. to study. Well, you actually have too much data too, because many of these to to really get useful information, you don't just need the light curve. You need to look to get spectra, and you need to get spectra at different times, and that's very time consuming. It requires a lot of also telescope time, and what you really need is are dedicated telescopes that follow up all of them. So at the moment, what happens, only about 10% of these supernovae are being followed up. And that introduces interesting human selection effects. Right. Because the ones that are being followed up are the ones someone decided to be most interesting. I see, yeah. And so that's rather bad for getting good statistics on supernovae. <laughs> I mean, we don't know the statistics of the different types of supernovae very well. I mean, there is one core collapse supernova in our galaxy roughly every 100 years and wow. a thermonuclear explosion every every 300 years and a gamma burst perhaps every 100,000 years. Good grief. So we really don't expect to see ones in the local neighborhood very often. No. Or perhaps should be glad about that in the case of gamma ray bursts. Yes. Well, if they are too close, they could be rather destructive. People have estimated that if they are too close, they could could cause mass extinctions. But the universe is big, and so there's a supernova occurring in the universe every few seconds, and there are probably a few hundred gamma bursts in the universe per day. So as someone that uh, studies pulsars, there was a link that you mentioned between a type of supernova called electron capture and um, the production of a particular pulsar. So I was interested in that and I was wondering if you could explain what we think happens in an electron capture supernova. Yes, I mean at the beginning we talked about iron core collapse supernovae where the core collapses because you have an iron core but for stars that have a mass of around 10 solar masses something happens already before you form an iron core. You have hydrogen, helium, and carbon burning, but that produces an oxygen, neon, and magnesium core. And when that reaches a certain critical density, you get electron captures. And what it means is the electrons combine with magnesium nuclei, magnesium and neon. These cores are supported by electron degeneracy, which means the electrons provide the pressure support. If you capture them onto magnesium, that pressure support disappears. And so all of a sudden, the core loses its its hydrostatic support and collapses. So it sounds a little bit like the process in which a, a neutron star is formed. That happens when you form a neutron star as well, mm-hmm. but it doesn't cause the collapse there. I mean, it's true in the collapse of an iron core, the protons actually do merge with the electrons. Okay. So it is a similar effect. Okay. And it also it helps to, to destabilize the, the formation of a neutron star as well. But it's not the cause there. Okay. So when the electrons are captured and, and, it, and it collapses, what's the result of a supernova like that? Now, there are several differences compared to normal supernovae. First, this occurs at a very characteristic density, which means it co- occurs for a certain mass of the collapsing object, which is 1.375. We can calculate that. Now, the resulting neutron star will then be slightly less massive because a lot of the gravitational binding energy is released. And it produces a very specific mass, and that mass is 1.25 solar masses. And so it produces a subclass of neutron stars with that precise mass. 
Which is quite a low mass. Which is quite a low mass. But there are now about four neutron stars known that are more or less exactly at that mass. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the supernova itself is most likely much fainter because these have very fluffy envelopes which are very easy to eject. And then the energy in the in the supernova is always of the order of the binding energy of the envelope. So they will be fainter and they will probably also f- have fewer instabilities in the in the collapse process. And it's these instabilities in the collapse that are believed to produce what's called a neutron star kick. I mean, most single pulsars are observed to have high space velocities, which are associated with the asymmetry in the supernova. So the typical velocity is a few hundred kilometers per second. Mm. Now, you don't expect that for these electron capture supernovae, because these instabilities that probably cause these kicks cannot operate. Okay. And and I think you were saying that was because um, the... Uh final collapse happens rather quickly in these That's cases. right. When the, these instabilities I'm talking about, they occur on a characteristic time scale, and that time scale is tens of milliseconds. The collapse has to occur on a time scale that's at least five or ten of these time scales, so that the instability can grow enough. And if you don't have the time, then you don't get a big kick. So that final collapse in, in any supernova, really, is a, is a very, very fast process compared to, obviously, the the, the the lifetime and even the um, post-main sequence phase of a star, the supernova happens phenomenally quickly. Certainly the phase where you form the compact object and trigger the supernova, that is over in less than a second. Right. However, that's actually still a long time scale because the natural time scale of a neutron star is milliseconds. So that's the dynamical time scale of a neutron star. So the whole process has to has to be prolonged over a thousand dynamic times. Right. Which is actually not that easy. Okay. <laughs> so even though it sounds short, it isn't. Well, then perhaps as a uh, last question, obviously the observations of supernovae are really forging ahead now. So in the future, do you see the theoretical modelling of supernovae catching up, or is that going to take some time to sort of sort out the picture of what's going on? I, th- I think it will take some time. And the problem really is that you only have very limited observations. I mean, if you could always look at some signature of what happens at the center, then it would be easy at least to identify the the mechanism, the explosion mechanism. But a lot of the diversity comes from different envelope properties or just different environments. And some of that is just like weather. Okay. And you need to be able to look through that weather to really get to the understanding of, of what really goes on. The calculations, some of the supernova calculations, are still very unreliable. There's no fully self-consistent calculation that shows how a massive star collapses and produces a supernova. And these calculations are done on big supercomputers, and they take take about a year. Right. So that means it takes a long time just to really to explore the relevant physics. So that we are really relying on indirect arguments, like, for example, looking at pulsars or pulsars in binaries that tell us a lot. And the binary pulsar itself, the second pulsar in that system is probably one of these electron capture supernovae. And it has the right mass of 1.25 solar masses, and it's very clear that that supernova did not produce a large kick. So that is one way of corroborating the, these ideas with 
observations. Type but of it's not based. It's not based. Yes, it's a type of archaeology. It's not based on first principle calculations <laughs> because they are still too difficult. Oh, very interesting. Thank you very much for being interviewed. You're welcome. Thanks for that, Mark. And now it's that part of the show where we talk about everything that doesn't fit in the show. <laughs> it's not exactly what I meant to say, but but it was whatever. <laughs> so so what have, have you got something for us this time? Yes. Um, so on July fourth uh, was Hubble one millionth science observation. Like one millionth. That's that's a lot of observations. Quite a lot. Well, you know it's been running for twenty one years now, and uh, it's been quite exciting. And it observed not one of those pretty images that you know, oh. but something more exciting, more exciting. Woo, more scientifically exciting. Yes, um, it uh, looked at uh, a planet uh, about the size of Jupiter and looked at its chemical composition by doing like a spectroscopic observation, getting a spectrum. So, so it's, it splits up the light into the different components, and then you can tell what chemicals are there. Exactly. Cool. Is and, this uh, a planet that has an exciting name? Oh, very exciting name. It's the planet Kepler 2B. Ooh. It's the B that it's imaginative, <laughs> isn't it? Very imaginative. Can we give it a name ourselves? Can we call it, like, Fred or something? Sure. Okay. Cool. Fred the planet. Fred. Okay. So is there anything exciting about Fred? Or was it just, it just happened to it be the It just happened to be the one million. Cool. That's really good. And go, Fred, go. <laughs> I don't know how much longer Hubble's got. I guess it's... Well, until the gyros yeah. start failing again, I, I mean, we can't go and fix it anymore, can we? No, there are, it will be no more servicing missions because the very last space shuttle mission um, has now finished. Um, Atlantis, STS-135, landed at the Kennedy Space Centre on July 21st. Um, so that is it. There will be no more shuttle missions. So after 30 years, the first one was on April 12th, 1981... About a month before I was born. Yep. Um, Old. Yeah. Well, Space Shuttle's <laughs> older than me. Um, and I imagine it was in development for a long time before it actually flew. Um, but yeah, so there will be no more shuttle missions. So all the resupply missions and astronaut changeovers to the ISS will now be done using the Russian spacecraft. So uh, all the Americans that go up will be going on uh, on Russian craft. But it is kind of sad that the Space Shuttle's ended. But as I think we said in the last show, hopefully this is going to push... NASA to push the people that they've contracted to kind of make the shuttle replacements. And something I saw in Universe today, um, a couple of days ago, this was posted on the 26th of July, is that SpaceX, which is one of these contractor companies, they've developed what's called the Dragon Capsule, which isn't a manned spacecraft. It's just, I guess, an unmanned supply ship. But they flew the first test flight was successful in December last year, December 2010, and apparently they've now asked NASA if they can combine the next two missions that they had planned into one, which would mean that they want to um, dock one of these Dragon capsules with the International Space Station by the end of the year, which is pretty cool. Mm. Pretty cool. So is it is it actually going to have supplies on board or is it purely a test flight? I don't think that they quite know that yet. There is something called the Materials International Space Station Experiments, number eight, which has apparently got a reservation with SpaceX to fly back to Earth on a Dragon capsule, but I don't know whether that would be this one or a future one. Oh, okay. You'd guess they wouldn't want to put anything on important in case it on didn't the first one. work. But Just I guess if case. you're taking something that's been on the space station that they don't need anymore, I guess they could. Yeah. Well, because NASA, of course, were developing their own 
reusable heavy lift launchers for the Constellation. Yeah. Until Congress cut the budget and they had to scale back that program significantly. So, and the Europeans don't have a manned launcher, so it's all about the Russians. And the Chinese are doing quite a lot to try and get a man on the moon, and I guess India's probably doing quite a bit as well. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting times.、Mm. So, with no more shuttle missions, of course, we can't service the Hubble Space Telescope anymore. But there are plenty of other telescopes up there that are far too far away to service anyway. A lot of things out, like Planck and Herschel, out at L two, which you can't get to with the space shuttle anyway.、Um, so they're all taking lots and lots and lots of observations. So I don't think they're quite up to a million yet. No. And、um, the James Webb Space Telescope, if it goes up, will go to L two as well. But from a telescope that's done a million observations to a man who's probably done just as many, here's Ian Morrison with what's in the night sky this month. Well, the night sky for August. Well, something to be said about August, I suppose, is you haven't got to wait up quite so late in the evening before it gets dark. As one does so, you can't help if it's clear seeing that lovely region of constellations, including Cygnus the Swan, Lyra the Lyre, and Aquila the Eagle, with their bright stars Deneb, Vega, and Altair, making up what's called the Summer Triangle. I've talked about those quite a bit, so I want to move over. To talk about some of the stars that will be rising a little bit later on, just below Cygnus is the little, very sweet constellation of Delphinus the Dolphin, and below that, to the lower left, is Equilus, and then we have two constellations below that I very rarely ever talk about: Aquarius and Capricornus. But I want to mention those because there are aspects to do with them that come up in the highlights. Over to the left of Delphinus, we have. Pegasus, the winged horse, upside down, in fact, as we see it, with four stars making up the square of Pegasus. The top left-hand star, called Alpha Rats, Alpha Andromedae, I guess it is, is part of the Andromeda constellation, which contains, of course, the great nebula in Andromeda, the Andromeda Galaxy M31. There are two ways to find it. You can start at Alpha Rats. Move one brightish star to the left, turn a bit upwards to a second bright star, the same distance again. At that point, turn sharp right. There's one star not far away. Go the same distance again, and you should see a little fuzzy object close to another rather fainter star,、um, easily visible with binoculars. If it's very dark and transparent and no moon, you may well see it with your unaided eye. If you continue upwards. From Andromeda, you come to the W shape of Cassiopeia. The three rightmost stars make a very good little V shape, and they actually point directly towards Andromeda. It's another way of finding it. If you take the top left star of that V and go to the next one in Cassiopeia, it'll be sort of roughly horizontal, I suspect. It points towards the constellation of Perseus. And if you scan along with your binoculars from there down into Perseus, you should see a little fuzzy glow, which actually is a pair of wonderful open clusters. They're called the Perseus Double Cluster, and that's well worth seeing too. So some nice things to see in the sky. Well, what about the planets? Well, we could say that Jupiter is beginning its next apparition, although it won't really become. Easy for us to see until towards the end of the year, but it's now high in the pre-dawn sky. In fact, it rises at midnight 
at the beginning of August, and by dawn, its elevation is about 50 degrees. Now that's quite high. What's nice about Jupiter is that it's moving towards the highest part of the ecliptic, which means we'll see it highish in the sky over the next couple of years or so, and that's very nice indeed. Angular size increasing slowly to about 44 arc seconds. And of course, you can easily see the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it and the equatorial belts. So maybe it's a bit late or perhaps get up early to have a look. In contrast, Saturn, which we've been looking at beautifully over the last few months, is now sort of rather deep down in the western sky after sunset. But you can still see it, in fact, at an elevation of about 20 degrees in the southwest an hour after sunset. But in fact, by the end of the month, its elevation will only be 5 degrees, so probably that's getting a bit late. But perhaps have a look at the beginning of the month. It's been a lovely thing to see over the last few months. The brightness is increasing somewhat because the rings are opening out. They're now about 8 degrees from edge on. And we give a plus sign to that 8, implying we're seeing the North Pole. So probably it's past its best, but still visible if you have a look. Mercury, that passes between the Earth and the Sun, which is called inferior conjunction, on the 16th of August. So you obviously can't see it then. But actually, because it's uh, not having to move too far, it quite quickly emerges into the pre-dawn sky. And you could see it somewhere around the 27th of August. And about 6 a.m., it'll be about 7 degrees above the horizon. And it'll be down to the lower left of a waning moon. And further distance up to the right of the moon is the planet Mars, which we'll now come to. Mars is shining at magnitude 1.4, and at the beginning of August is in the western half of Germany. It's risen to an elevation of about 30 degrees at sunrise, so you can easily see it in the pre-dawn sky just north of east. By month's end, Mars, now in mid-Germany, rises at 2 a.m., and will have an elevation of 40 degrees by sunrise, so well worth getting up for. The angular size only reaches about 4.5 arc seconds, so you're unlikely to see any markings on the rather lovely salmon pink disc. On the 5th of August, it passes just to the lower right of the rather lovely open cluster M35. That would make quite a nice photograph or telescopic view. Venus passes behind the Sun on the 15th of August, so not much chance of seeing it this month. It won't really be visible again for a month or so when it will reappear in the evening twilight sky. So what about some highlights of the month? Well, in fact, August is quite a good month for highlights, and one that we normally put at the top is the Perseid meteor shower it's the most reliable of the year, which is around the 11th to the 14th of August. And the peak is in the early hours of the morning of the 13th, where you might easily see 30 or more meteors per hour. Now, last year was particularly good because it was very close to new moon. One thing about the moon is that each month, the day at which it's at the new moon or full moon advances by one day. So can you see that 12 months later, if it was around new moon then, a year ago, it'll be at full moon? And sadly, full moon is on the 13th of August.
Now, one good thing, in fact, is that the moon is at quite low deck. It's fairly low down in the sky, but still, I think its light will wash out the fainter meteors. But there's a still a chance if you look towards Perseus or up in the sky to the east in the early hours of the morning. That's best. You've got a good chance of seeing quite a few.、Um, on the 11th of August, there aren't quite so many meteors, but at about 4 a.m., the moon will actually have set. And you'll have about half an hour before it gets light, where you could actually look for them without moonlight being in the way. So well worth having a try. Right. Well, three more things.、Um, I mentioned Pegasus. It has a mane and a head, which sort of point upwards. Just beyond the highest star of the head is a rather nice globular cluster called M15. And I'll never forget when, quite some time ago now, I looked at it from southern France, and was amazed how bright it was. In fact, I wasn't seeing M15 at all. I was actually seeing Comet West, which just passed it within about half a degree. Now, on the second of August, another comet, Comet Garrard, sadly not nearly so bright, magnitude of about plus eight, gets very close, just half a degree. Above M15, but you ought to be able to see it with binoculars. By the end of the month, on the 27th, it lies just seven arc minutes of another globular cluster, eighth magnitude M71. So I put a little chart on the night sky page showing the position of this comet as it moves through Pegasus and over to the west. On August the 22nd. The planet Neptune reaches opposition, and that's when it's pretty well nearest to the Earth. It has a magnitude of about 7.8, so you should be able to see it with binoculars under a dark sky. On the 22nd, it lies 1.6 degrees above the star Iota Aquarii. I mentioned Aquarius in my little bit at the beginning. It might be worth having a look next month. Neptune reaches the same spot in the sky as where it was when it was discovered, so it's a bit of a historical moment. I'd like just to point out Vesta, and it's not the largest of the asteroids or minor planets. That's actually Ceres, which is actually now classed as a dwarf planet. But it is the brightest, and this month reaches a magnitude of 5.6. So again, you might just see it with your unaided eye under a dark, transparent sky. On August the fifth, when at its peak brightness, it passes close to a pair of fainter stars, while on the 31st, it's just 20 arc seconds away from the fourth magnitude star, Psi Capricorni, which, as I said, is down to the lower left of Aquila the Eagle. It's due south around midnight, and binoculars should enable you to pick it out. So again, using the star chart I've given in the night sky page, why not have a try? So good hunting. Let's hope we have some clear nights. Thanks for that, Ian. And here's John Field to tell us what you can see in the southern night sky.
Welcome to the Carter Observatory's August Jugcast, coming to you from Wellington, New Zealand. With the winter solstice well past, we are now moving through our coldest part of the year. Hopefully this will be accompanied with clear skies, allowing us long nights of observing. This month we will look at the region of the sky stretching northwards from Sagittarius to Deneb, low above our horizon. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, is at its thickest and brightest around Sagittarius and thins out as we move northwards along the Cygnus arm towards Deneb. A dark rift runs through this part of the Milky Way. These dark features are dense clouds of interstellar dust and gas that are blocking out the light of the more distant stars. Flying along this part of our night sky, we find the celestial birds Aquila the Eagle and Cygnus the Swan. The four brightest stars in Cygnus form a large and easily seen cross and is commonly known as the Northern Cross. Deneb, the brightest star in Cygnus, is low down on our northern horizon and it marks the tail. And a line of stars runs up the Milky Way to Alberio, marking the Swan's head. Deneb is the 19th brightest star in the night sky and is estimated to be 1,500 light years away. Albireo is a showpiece double star. Although it is catalogued as Beta, the second brightest star in Cygnus, it is in fact the fifth brightest star in the constellation. When viewed through a small telescope or with binoculars, you will see a beautiful pairing of a pale yellow and blue star. The brighter yellow star is also a double star. The different colours relate to the different surface temperatures of these stars. 31 Cygnus may be the most beautiful binocular double in the sky. It consists of an orange and turquoise companion stars of magnitude 3.8 and 4.8. It is very low and difficult to observe from New Zealand. 61 Cygnus was the first star to have its parallax measured by the German astronomer William Bessel in 1838. Parallax is a slight difference in position of a star compared to the background stars when viewed from opposite sides of the Earth's orbit. 61 Cygnus is a nearby star 11.4 light years away and consists of a pair of stars of magnitudes 5.2 and 6.05. Aquila the Eagle is marked by a distinct line of three stars, the brightest Altair in the centre. At a distance of 17 light years, Altair is one of the closest stars to our solar system, and the name means the flying eagle in Arabic. In Greek mythology, Aquila represented an eagle carrying one of Zeus's thunderbolts. Straddling the Milky Way, Kula contains a number of star clusters well within the range of small telescopes. NGC 6709 and 6755 are two pretty open star clusters. There are a number of planetary nebulas in Aquila. NGC 6751 and 6781 are just two of these. This is a very short phase in the life of a solar mass star. This is when the star's atmosphere is being lost into interstellar space during the star's red giant phase. This period may last for a few thousand years before the material is too dilute or distant to be visible. Early observers called them planetary nebulas due to their circular appearance when viewed for a small telescope. Perhaps the most famous planetary nebula is found underneath Aquila, known as the Dumbbell Nebula or M27. It can be seen in binoculars as a faint haze. Small telescopes will reveal more of the dumbbell shape, and long exposure images will reveal the colours of the nebula. At 1,300 light years away, this is one of the closest planetary nebulas to us and covers around about a quarter of the diameter of the full moon as seen as our sky. Sweeping around Sagittarius with binoculars towards Alberio, you may spot an interesting shape of stars called the coat hanger. This line of sight shape resembles the handy hanger and stands out really well. It is a fun object to discover. Planetary nebula play an important role in planet formation. The material lost into space during this phase of the star's evolution is enriched with heavier elements, oxygen, silicon and iron, amongst others. This material is then swept up in the formation of new stars and planets. It was in this process that the ingredients were made available for the formation of our solar system. In earlier epochs, this heavier material would not have been available, so only gaseous planets 
of hydrogen and helium could have formed. Saturn is one of the two giant gas planets in our solar system and is still the only planet well placed for viewing in our evening sky. Weighing 100 times the mass of the Earth, Saturn and the more massive Jupiter are similar in composition and ratio of gases to our star, the Sun. The average density of Saturn is less than water. The inner core is much denser, but the outer regions of the atmosphere are far less dense. The system of rings that surround Saturn are unlike any other in our solar system. The main ring structure is over 300,000 kilometers wide from one side to the other. These rings are incredibly thin in comparison, only a few tens of meters thick. Fainter rings have been found up to 13 million kilometers from Saturn. The main rings are mostly made of a mixture of ice and rock and are highly reflective. Saturn was known as Kronos, the keeper of time and the harvest god, and was also known as the father of the gods in Greek mythology. A small telescope should easily reveal the rings and Saturn's largest moon, Titan, and possibly one or more of the other moons. The current moon count is 63 confirmed, the same as Jupiter. Recently, though, up to 150 moonlets have been discovered, but have not been officially confirmed as moons. Mercury is low down on our western horizon after sunset, and it is not far from Saturn and the star Spica. Jupiter will rise in the east around midnight and will be high in our morning sky before sunrise, followed by the fainter planet Mars appearing as a red star in the morning sky. Jupiter will reveal its four largest moons in binoculars and the cloud bands should be seen in a small telescope. Also at opposition is asteroid Vesta. At magnitude 5.6 it is visible to the unaided eye from a dark sky location. Binoculars and a star chart will be useful to find this asteroid. The robotic spacecraft Dawn is currently orbiting Vesta and is returning amazing images of this large asteroid. Venus is too close to the Sun to be seen, but soon will be moving into our evening sky later this year. Thanks for listening into our Jodcast and the team at Carter wish you clear skies. Thanks for that, Ian and John. And we should apologise to any Southern Sky listeners. Um, unfortunately, John Field was unable to provide us with a night sky segment last month. Carter Observatory had a lot of people ill and people leaving and they just couldn't get it done. So we didn't know before we were recording the presenting, which is why we didn't mention it. But sorry, and hopefully they're back for good now. So now we get on to the part of the show where we round up your feedback. And first of all, we've had a postcard. Yay! <laughs> and even better than that... It's from a listener, who is also a real person, she says in brackets, I hope, and Facebook fan Sarah Cornell. So Sarah's on holiday on Skye, which is an island off the coast of Scotland, and has sent us a postcard of a sunset, because apparently there were no astrophotos. She says she's assured the skies are dark here, but it's been cloudy, and because it's summer, it hasn't got dark until really, really late. So she hasn't done any observing, but yay, a postcard! Woohoo! <laughs> On the forum, uh, Susan K commented, yet another great show, very interesting interviews, and of course, an awesome Ask an Astronomer by the officially awesome Tim O'Brien. I'd like to think we're all pretty awesome. Yeah, but he's officially awesome. I guess he's got a Facebook fan page, which I don't have, but Megan, you do have a Facebook fan group, I think, yes? I do. I'm pretty sure Tim's got more fans than I do. Though. Yeah, I think you've got about 12 and you're one of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you. But... Tim also has another fan, I guess, because Earth Unit says, uh, Dita Susan K, a great show. Just one question before I go to Mars. How will I be able to download the Jodcast? Very good question. I was thinking maybe we should uh, try to see if we could uh, broadcast it using the Lovell Telescope and just broadcast it to, you know. I'd let you go and ask the relevant people at Total Bank if you could do that. I imagine the answer would be no. Oh, come on. Yeah, would be fun. Nobody's broadcasted from the site in ooh, decades. 
And <laughs> for good be, reason. <laughs> it would be a great thing to broadcast, especially to Mars. So as Jen said at the beginning of the show, we have a new Facebook page, which you can find at facebook.com slash jogcast. And thanks to the 130 people who already have liked us so far, that's at the time of recording. Um, so if you are on Facebook and you haven't already, please go and like our new page. Um, we've had a couple of comments on there already. One from Michael Williams, who asks, are all astronomers such a happy lot? Um, I don't know. I'm not entirely sure we're a representative sample of no, astronomers. No, I guess we're the happiest. Yeah. yeah. But that doesn't mean that the rest of the astronomers are not happy. No. I think most astronomers are happy. Yeah. Yeah. And from Nick Whitehead, who says, Would I volunteer for the Mars mission? Absolutely, even if it was just a one-way trip. Someone has to be first. Well, quite right. And I'd volunteer. So I guess we're sending you with Earth Unit and Nick Whitehead on the official Jogcast mission to Mars. Yay. I'll navigate. (laughs) (laughs) Over on Twitter, Inksmithy has described the Jogcast as nerdy, awkward, breathless humour and amazingly informative. So I guess that's a comment on the show that Dave and I recorded together because there's a lot more giggling whenever the two of us get together. Yeah, you're a bad influence on each other, you two. Yeah, but thank you for that. And Rebel and Wolf, who is Terry O'Connor from STFC, I guess with the help of his kids is spreading the word of Jogcast in Australia through the medium of Jogcast t-shirts. So thank you for that, Terry. That's really appreciated as well. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jogcast.net. On the forum at forum.jogcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jogcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jogcast. That just sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And as always, don't forget that you can send us post at any time. The address is on the website. So if you're going on holiday, please send us a postcard. And that brings us to the end of the show. So all that's left to say is thank you to Professor Philip Podsielowski for the interview. At the time of recording, we don't have a celebrity for the intro-outro. So if we do by then, thank you. <laughs> The editors for this show were Jen Gupta, Mungan Argo, Claire Bretherton, and Mark Perver. And the producer was the awesome Jen Gupta. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) I really should stop yaying every time that's read out. (laughs) So until next time, John John on. on. Bye.